All right. Go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah, chapter 19. But before we get into the text, I want to deal with a couple of introductory issues. Um, last week, we picked up in chapter 13 and spent five chapters and probably an hour and ten minutes walking through God's planned judgment on this nation and that nation with cities and places that you've never visited and never heard of and probably don't care about. Tonight, as we do the second half, uh, we're going to do another four chapters focused on these things. In fact, Isaiah has kind of a reputation of being pretty boring and hard to wade through, wade through until you get to about chapter 40. Okay. Life verses, sweet morning devotional passages, great gospel messages all come out of the second half of Isaiah, but the first half is not usually as familiar to us. It's a lot more difficult, and especially uh, with the modern sensitivity we have to the idea of a God of judgment, um, we can really start to want to tap out in the first half of Isaiah. But I wanted to point out to you um, that in doing so, and, and it's fine. It's fine to have favorite passages in Scripture. It's fine to have places that you turn to. It's fine even to have favorite verses. It's fine. But if you never take the time to work from the beginning to the end, you lose out on a couple of things. When you do that, it's kind of like biting right into your Tootsie Pop, okay? Instead of licking through that candy center that none of us really cares about, okay? It's a lot like instead of solving the Rubik's Cube, just scraping off all of the stickers and putting them where they need to go, okay? Um, the good news that's so overwhelmingly good at the end of Isaiah is intentionally following the bad news at the first half. It's what gives us the depths that God overflows in grace in his goodness. Remember as well that Isaiah, the first half of the book, is written during his time to his original audience, and they're in a season of judgment, okay? And so that makes the good stuff at the end just that. It's, it's grace. It's, it's goodness above and beyond what they deserve, okay? There's also a tension that runs through the book of Isaiah, which is how can God fulfill his promises when Israel's so unfaithful? How is God going to bring about righteousness without sacrificing his own justice? Okay? Uh, and uh, that tension is important. It's, it's something that we have to feel before we can really feel the resolve of it. We want to read the Bible in such a way that when we get in the argument of Romans, which follows the same structure, doesn't it? It begins with what's wrong with humanity and all of the closed doors, the ways we can't fix it, okay? But if you don't do that, if you don't wade through chapters 1, 2, and 3, you don't feel the full weight of, the, of chapter 4 when Paul says, so that God might both be just and justifier of the ungodly. When that tension is resolved in Jesus Christ, you don't even feel it. So you just roll over it like a really low-profile speed bump. You just keep going, okay? 
You will never get to the point in Romans 8 where you're overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You'll never understand that therefore offer your bodies as a willing sacrifice. Okay? There is such a thing, even in biblical literature, as payoff. You have to wade all the way through the arguments of Job before God shows up on the scene. You have to work through all the despair of Ecclesiastes before you get a little bit of a resolve in the last chapter from our narrator. Uh, You have to read all of the unabridged, paid-by-the-hour Alexander Dumas, Count of Monte Cristo, to feel the great justice and vengeance in the last hundred pages. I'm a reader. I've always been a reader. But when that book was assigned... I was so bored and so angry until I got to things finally coming together. And I did not walk away from that book and go, oh man, I'm so sad that I wasted all my time with those first 700 pages. I should have just jumped right to the end. No, it was the ending that made it all worth it, okay? And so don't, don't tap out in Isaiah. Recognize uh, that, once again, the bad news that we face now is the bad news that makes the good news good. The tension that's building in this book is building towards not just a resolve, but a climax, the twist, right, Uh, which is valuable. The second thing I want to say is about the section we're in, okay? Um, Sometimes, chapters 13 through 23, so what we started in last week and what we'll finish tonight, is called the Book of the Nations, because it's basically just a collection of judgments on the nations surrounding Israel. And like we talked about last week, those nations are handpicked because either they are the ones that Israel would turn to to save them, or they're the ones that threaten Israel's existence. Okay? So, so the whole point of Isaiah here is to say, don't fear those who you fear because God is going to take care of them and he's sovereign. And don't trust those who you trust instead of God because they're going to get what's coming to them and they can't avoid it. So, so it's been laying out those things. But what we would miss is that there really is an overarching structure for these chapters from chapter 13 to 23. Okay, um, And that's one of the reasons why we take the Bible in this evening study at this pace. So we can see the big things that we don't always see when we're in the weeds of the text. So we can see the forest and understand all of the magnolias intentionally planted by the lake and all of the non-fruit-bearing ones that are planted by the trail or whatever. There's a plan, right? There's a structure. But we need to keep in mind that structure does a few different things, okay? Sometimes structure is meaning. Consider a Big Mac, okay? A Big Mac wouldn't be a Big Mac if you changed the pattern, okay? But the pattern actually means something. It doesn't just identify it for you. If you put the patties on the outside, you don't have a Big Mac, you have a mess, right? If you put the bread in the middle by the top bread or by the bottom bread, then you have this mouthful of dry, right? There's intention in it. There's meaning in the structure, okay? Other times, structure is primarily aesthetic in nature. It's, it's nice and organized. It gives a quality to it, okay? And whether you like it or not, Many of the patterns that you strive for in your life are aesthetic in nature, okay? That's the reason if you have a pattern in your bathroom, tile, uh, bathroom when you're laying down tile, you don't just go, oh, shoot, I'm missing a black one at the end, and you put another one there. It will drive you crazy every morning for the rest of your life, okay? Structure is often just aesthetic. It looks nicer when it's organized, okay? 
sometimes, and usually this is only when structure is smaller, it is mnemonic in nature. It's for memory, okay? So consider in the Psalms when the Psalms are acrostics, meaning each line begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's to aid you in memorization, okay? Most of the smallest uh, proverbs, the structure there carries meaning and memory reasons, okay? They're, they're pithy and they're contrasted and there's a cadence to them so that you remember them easily, okay? What's going on here in Isaiah, the structure that I'm about to make clear to you is probably merely aesthetic. It's just a good organization that is attractive and makes sense, but it could be that it conveys meaning that we just don't pick up on, okay? Because that's the thing, is you can see structure and not know why it matters. Okay, years and years ago, um, a video game company that was working on Red Alert 3, which is just, just a normal shooter game, uh, they decided to build a new engine that would play by real-world physics, okay? So the hope was you drive a car through a wall and you back it out. If you break the structural integrity of that wall, the building would collapse. That's what they were hoping for, okay? But when they built the game originally and then threw the physics switch on, everything they built just collapsed, okay? Because they didn't have an architectural background. They didn't actually know how buildings work. It may be the same thing with the structure that I'm going to point out in Isaiah. It's clearly there. But we don't know if it serves a purpose or if it's just attractive. But here's basically what it is. We've made one round moving around through nations, and here's the things that are the same, okay? In the same slot, I believe there's five nations in a row. The fourth nation in the first list is Israel, okay? And that stood out to us last week because all the other nations God's dealing with are ones that are around, but this is my people Israel, and it's right there in the middle. In the same way, on lap two, in the fourth slot, we'll find Judah, okay? Also, in the fifth slot, in the first list, we find one of the nations, but surprisingly, we find God having a plan that leads that nation through judgment and to salvation. And in the same way tonight, the last place for the nation is going to open up again towards salvation, okay? And so the two unique items... Uh, or types of items on the list are in the same slots when you break it in half and put it in a pattern. That may mean something. I would suggest, this is totally my opinion, um, that it is rhetorical in nature. In other words, Isaiah puts it in this order because when you put those things next to each other, it tips the scales of what he wants to accomplish, okay? And so he gets them nodding along with judgment on the other nations, and then it's like, oh yeah, we're also deserving of judgment. And then there's this nation that receives surprisingly, shockingly grace. And what does that do for his audience? It says, you also have two paths ahead of you. You can go either way, okay? So there are both bad examples and good examples with them right in the middle inescapably, okay? That would be my best guess at what's going on in this passage. Um, but it does mean that, again, we pick up tonight and we look at these oracles concerning the different nations surrounding Israel. And remember, the majority of the um, historical context for this is when Shennacherib of Assyria is threatening Judah. They've already wiped out Israel, and now they're coming back for Judah. And so Israel, or excuse me, Judah, uh, and King Hezekiah in particular is going, okay, what are we going to do about this? Where are we going to appeal for help? 
uh, like the psalmist asked the question, where does my help come from? That is the headline of the Judean star, okay? That is, that is the question is, what are we going to do now, okay? And so chapter 19, verse 1, opens up with Egypt. Now, Egypt has been a, uh, a nation of hostility to Israel many times in their history. Remember, they were the ones who enslaved the Jewish race uh, all the way back in Exodus. And they've also been an ally on particular occasions and one that God constantly reminds Israel not to trust in. So here, verse 1 of chapter 19, an oracle concerning Egypt, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. You may remember multiple times in Isaiah, we've seen these theophanies where God is like a divine warrior, okay? And so it's like here he's coming on a cloud instead of a chariot, and he's rushing to do battle with Egypt. And notice it says, the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them, okay? And so we can see here there's going to be a challenge to the gods of Egypt, okay? And this is really round two of what happens in the Exodus. Every one of the plagues that happens in the early chapters of Exodus and comes upon the Egyptian people directly challenges the, um, the pantheon of Egyptian gods, okay? And so everything that God proves he has mastery over in the book of Exodus is something that was tied to Egyptian worship, okay? Uh, in fact, if you go back and you read the story and you watch for it, one of the motivations God gives for the plagues is so that Pharaoh and all of Egypt would know that I am the Lord, okay? It's a theological battle, okay? It's a, it's a divine celebrity death match. That's what the Exodus is. And so he's presenting the same thing here. And then notice the, the way this is going to look in life is like civil war, verse 2. I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight against one another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel and they will inquire of their idols and their sorcerers and their mediums and their necromancers. In other words, they'll be desperate looking for answers and get nothing but silence. No help. None of their spiritual practices will be of value to them. And then verse 4, I will give over the Egyptians into the hands of a hard master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord of hosts. Now that is, as you would anticipate, exactly what happens in history. Um, just a, way at, a ways later in the time of Hezekiah, um, I'm trying to pull up his name here, just a second, um, this civil war that involves a total of 12 different factions in Egypt rages for almost five years until a victor is declared. Um, his name is uh, he was an Ethiopian, and his name was Shabaka, and the way he comes into power is through severe domination, basically king of the hill style. He doesn't come up with a peace treaty or a non-aggression pact. He just wins the fight and wins and rules with an iron fist. And so Isaiah is foreseeing this, and he's prophesying it, and God says, this is my doing. I'm bringing this about. I'm going to punish the Egyptians. And the first thing we saw, remember, is that he renders their gods useless. 
And then he renders their spiritual sources of wisdom useless. And then he brings about a cruel ruler. And then verse 5, the waters of the sea will be dried up and the river will be dry and parched and the canals will become foul and the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Think of the Egypt you have in your mind, right? It's a desert, okay? There's no rainfall in Egypt and so their entire life let alone their livelihood, is built around the River Nile and the delta that feeds it, okay? In fact, it's through the flooding of the Nile and irrigation that their fields are, are, are watered and food is made, and God says, I'm going to dry that up, okay? Now, remember, again, in an Egyptian mindset, the Nile is divine. It's the source of all good things. So this is theological in nature, but I also want you to realize here that it's economic, Okay. So the first attack is a political one. He cripples their political power, hands them over to the ruler that they deserve. The second one is economic. He takes the source of all Egypt's wealth and prosperity and even their health at the most basic level, and he just dries it up. Verse 7, there will be bare places by the Nile on the brink of the Nile. All that's sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, will be no more. When it says parched, driven away, no more there, that's only three words in the Hebrew, and it's pretty poignant. So here's what it says. Dried, blown, nothing. Okay. He's just going to just dry, blow it away, and there will be nothing left. Verse 8, the fishermen will mourn and lament. All who cast a hook in the Nile, they will languish. Who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers in white cotton. Okay, these are not fishermen who work the river, and they're not farmers who are working for food. These are the textile people who don't have the cotton they need to do their job. This is a full economic breakdown, right? Verse 10, those who are pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. Even the minimum wage workers in Egypt are going to have a hard time because nobody can employ them to make their their garments. Nobody can get food to the McDonald's for them to make their burgers, right? It's, it's an entire economic collapse. Also here, because of what's going on politically and economically, it's going to exhaust the wisdom of Egypt's counselors, okay? And so notice verse 11, the princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wise counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. Now, you may remember all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 4 when we were talking about the wisdom of Solomon to, to help us understand how wise Solomon is, the author contrasts him with all the wisdom of Egypt. Okay? Egypt had an international reputation for wisdom. In fact, a lot of what we call the wisdom literature in the Old Testament is modeled after the literary structure of Egyptian texts that predate it. Okay. It was tremendously influential in the ancient world, but the circumstances are going to be so bad that nobody will have any good ideas. Even the wisdom of Egypt cannot deal with the plans of God. Notice the critique Isaiah makes here. How can you say to Pharaoh, I'm a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zone have become fools. He says, what good is your wisdom if you don't know God's plans? Okay. 
Think of the man that Jesus tells a parable about uh, who has so much yield in his field that he can't store it all. So he comes up with a plan, one that is feasible, one that is financially sound, and one that is good economic sense. I'll build more barns, and then I can store up and live off of this yield for years to come. But what doesn't he know? He doesn't know that his death day is on the calendar and it's tomorrow. And so none of those plans are going to come to pass. Okay? In the same way here, Egypt knows all of the information, understands all the ways things work, except they don't understand who God is and what he's doing. They don't understand his plan. Okay? God is on a mission throughout Isaiah to confound the wisdom of men, because what is that wisdom built on? Pride, self-sufficiency. Right? And so, verse 13, the princes of Zon have become fools. Proverbs says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And the princes of Memphis are deluded, and those that are the cornerstones of her tribe have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled with her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Okay. On the geopolitical scale, everyone watching will go, man, Egypt is behaving erratically right now. Nothing they're doing is sober or makes any sense. Verse 15, there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do, which is just a merism that means everything and in between is, is nothing. It's gone. Verse 16, in that day, now remember, sometimes in that day is continuing where we left off, okay? It's a structural marker that says I have more to say about that specific day, but sometimes it's a time machine, right? Sometimes in that day moves us way off the map to another day, that day, okay? And that's what happens clearly here, because notice what it says in verse 16, in that day the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts shakes over them and the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. Okay, so notice one point of comparison and one of contrast to what we were just reading. Point of comparison, this is about the plans of the Lord. He has a purpose and he's moving towards it. And that purpose includes the that day of verse 16. But notice the point of contrast. He says in that day, Judah is going to be so significantly powerful that even Egypt will fear Judah. Okay? Now that is not the days of Hezekiah. Remember, it's Hezekiah who's in a pickle and looking for help. Okay? Um, in fact, Hezekiah is, is basically the last bastion of goodness in the falling down of stairs that leads to the destruction of, of Judah right? And so this day that's being talked about here is not one that I can point to a particular year or a particular reign because we haven't seen it yet, okay? Although one commentator I read pointed out that, uh, that Israel's military today is a pretty strong rival that Egypt doesn't really want to handle, okay? So that's true, but notice what it says next, verse 18. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of those will be called the city of destruction. Now, certain manuscripts there, instead of saying the city of destruction, say city of the sun, that's probably more likely because that would be Heliopolis, which we know. 
okay? It's an Egyptian city. It's, fact, it's one that we've dug up. We have the archaeological remains of this city, okay? But notice what it's saying here. It's saying this day that comes when Egypt is in the fear of Israel, there will also be cities that have converted to Judaism and have embraced, as we'll see in just a second, the God of Israel, okay? And so this is looking beyond Egypt's present tense destruction in the first half of the chapter, way beyond even our time to a place where there begins to be converts even in Egypt, okay? Uh, notice verse 19, in that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. Now that's really striking, right? Because it doesn't say that Egypt will be flowing to Mount Zion to worship. It says they'll have their own place of worship in Egypt. And then the idea there of a pillar, like we see back in Abraham's day, or even when Joshua and his troops enter the land, is a memorial. Okay, it's a marker. This land belongs to the Lord. That's the idea here. Um, but this is looking forward to this time that Revelation unpacks where many nations will turn to the Lord and worship him in their own land, okay? Um, and then notice it continues here, verse 20, it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and deliver them, okay? Sounds familiar, right? It sounds like the book of Judges. We're seeing Egypt like he's another one of God's kids. In fact, it gets stronger here. Look at verse 21. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. That's the same language of Exodus, okay? And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, okay? And so that gets all the way to the national level, not just five cities, but the nation as a whole will know truly and fully, not their false gods, but the God, the Lord. And then notice what it says, uh, verse uh, 21, it says, In that day, and worship with sacrifice and offering, they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Okay, in other words, he will lovingly discipline them like a child so that they constantly return to him when they stray, just like we've seen with Israel. But here's where the kicker is, okay? At this point, we have a similar sounding relationship, but watch the language here in the closing verses, verse 24. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, okay? Now, Egypt is capable of cruelty, Babylon does horrible things, but the definitive cruel and horrible people in the Bible is the Assyrians, okay? And Isaiah saves this for last. He goes, it's not just that Egypt is going to become a stepbrother of Israel, but Assyria as well. In fact, the three of them are going to be a family, all of God's children, okay? And so it says here, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians, and then what we read in 24, in that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying. Okay, and so he envisions from north to south, running through Israel, a road connecting Assyria and Egypt that's traveled and shared and unifying, okay? When we talk about peace in the Middle East, this is it, okay? This is significantly different than even our experience today, but notice the language in verse 25. The Lord has blessed these three nations, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. 
and Assyria the work of my hands. Okay? Until this passage in Isaiah, both of those titles, the work of my hands and my people, exclusively used for Israel. The peoples, my people. Okay? The nations, Israel, the work of my own hands. Okay? Um, even in Isaiah, in chapter 1024, Isaiah identifies Israel as my people. Okay? The Psalms, this is normal language, and here God applies it uh, to Egypt, his people, Assyria, the work of his hands, and Israel, his inheritance. Okay? And so again, we see, although God has been working in the midst of a single nation, the descendants of Abraham, his plan is clearly international. Okay? And that goes all the way back to the beginning of God's plan. When you start in the book of Genesis, we don't get to the Jews until we get to Abraham, right? Everything before that is so universal, we all trace it as being our history, okay? So we have our first parents, Adam and Eve. We have the division of languages, okay, which is all part of our history. We have this worldwide universal flood. We have Noah, who is also our completely shared ancestor, okay? We all trace back to there. We have all of those things. They're universal. They're about all of humanity. And then suddenly in chapter 12, it narrows down and God begins to deal with Abraham and his family. Okay? But even there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God says, I will bless you. And those who bless you will be blessed. And those who curse you will be cursed. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay? God's plan is particular, but it's particular for a universal purpose. It's specific to reach the end of general, okay? In fact, Paul in Colossians pushes this even further, and he makes the significance of what God does with the Jews cosmic in nature, involving the entire universe and not just the nations of the earth. So, here is a profound statement of where things are headed. And remember, this is, this is interesting for Israel because it's easy for them to be shocked at Egypt and Assyria's inclusion. But right now, they're standing in the same dock under the same judgment of God, and it's going to be the same mercy. If you read closely Romans 9, 10, and 11... There's this interesting statement Paul makes that God has turned away from the Jews and turned unto the Gentiles so that he might have mercy on all, okay? And so by shutting the doors, by bringing about judgment, by presenting the bad news, by seeing that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that also, even though it excludes all people, through God's mercy becomes the most inclusive way of salvation there is because we share the same universal need and it's met by the same universal provision, okay? And so that's reflected here. Um, continuing on in chapter 20, okay? In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. Now, we know enough about history in this time that I can give you the year. This is 711 B.C., Okay? This is the occasion where under the Assyrian king, he sends General Sargon to the Philistian city of Ashdod, one of the five big cities in Philistia. Okay? He captures it, 
And in this year, God gives Isaiah instructions. Verse 2, at that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Now, just a word here. When it mentions here uh, that Isaiah for three years is naked, that word can mean not wearing a single article of clothing. It's the one that's used in Genesis 2 for Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed. But it's also the word that's used for David when he took off his outer garment and was dancing before the Lord on the way back into Jerusalem. Okay? And so, so it may be here that this is full nudity. It may be that it's partial nudity. But obviously, as we'll see in a second here, the message that's being conveyed is not one um, of nudity or sexuality or any of these things. It's one of humiliation and destitution, okay? Um, But also, it's worth pointing out here, when it says that he wore nothing for three years, I'm just assuming practically this is talking about his public persona, okay? When he shows up, thus saith the Lord. When he's out in public and speaking to the people, this is his official garments, okay? I don't think in cold winter nights he's shuddering on his floor to maintain the prophetic witness, okay? This is a public statement. I was reflecting on this last night, but when I was in middle school, I still remember a girl who wore the same t-shirt for an entire school year. And to be, to be uh, t- the sad point is, I don't remember why. I know she was making a point. I just don't remember what the point was, okay? Um, that's what's going on here. It's a acted out statement. Now, why does it need to be made? Okay, because Ashdod is right on the boundary of Israel, and Israel is going, okay, we could use some help. What about Egypt? And so notice what this all means. Notice the message that comes with this. He's acting this out, verse 3, the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians captive and the Cushites exiled, uh, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. And so Isaiah is basically saying, don't trust in Egypt because three more years and they're going to be looking just like I do, okay? And so the danger again is in um, choosing an ally that's not the Lord himself. Verse five, then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their boast. See that? If you, if you hope in them, if you boast in them now, they'll let you down. Verse 6, and the inhabitants of the coastland will say in that day, behold, this is what happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered by the king of Assyria. And how shall we escape? Who is the coastland there? That's the Philistines. Okay. And so they'll look and they'll go, even the Egyptians failed us. Okay. But they already have experienced that. Israel still has the choice. Chapter 21 turns to a new oracle, this one involving Babylon. Now look at verse 1, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. He's not going to use the name Babylon later to the chapter, and wilderness of the sea is a super weird title, but here's what most historians, archaeologists, and commentators suggest. Babylon is full of swampland, okay? It's like the marshland leading to Mount Doom in Mordor. That's what it's like, okay? And so calling it the wilderness of the sea is a poignant imagery way to reference Babylon without coming out front and saying it, okay? 
Um, now, there's a question of when this oracle is addressing, okay? Because Babylon's ultimate and final fall is in 539 BC, hundreds of years after Isaiah, when the Medio Persians come in, okay? Do you remember when Daniel uh, is hanging out and the Babylonian king, who's a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, takes the uh, implements of worship from the temple that they've had in storage and uses it at par as party favors, and there's the writing on the wall, and the writing basically says, tonight you fall, okay? And history tells us the same thing, uh, that, that Cyrus came into Babylon and didn't have to fight, he just captured the city. There was no fighting whatsoever. Okay, so that's a possibility, but there's a few other places along the line that this could also refer to. The one that is closest to Isaiah's time is the one that seems the most likely, and this isn't a final utter defeat of the empire Babylon. This is before Babylon has become an empire, and it's the first time they defend themselves against Assyria and lose, okay? Um, just like if you follow heavyweight fighters, right, there might be a final revisiting and the underdog becomes the champ. That's what happens with Babylon. In fact, that's what happens with most of the nations. Greece is just a backwoods unknown people until Alexander the Great comes in. Rome is, you know, the origins of Rome are so minimal and so unknown uh, that what's the story we tell about Rome? Well, these two kids were raised by wolves and that's where Rome comes from, right? That's, that's how backwoods and minimal their history is, okay? Uh, you're never a contender till you are one. Um, the reason why, even though some of this imagery sounds freaking Persian, okay, uh, the reason why we think this is 539 is because there's clearly going to be a fight. And like I just told you, in 539, there's no fight. The city's just taken. Everybody's drunk. The battle's already been lost on other lines. Babylon itself doesn't fall in those days. It's just taken over. It's just under new management, Okay. Um, so 539 makes sense. This would be similar to what we're going to see in chapter 39 when we get there, okay? So, as whirlwinds in the Negev, the Negev is the wilderness to the south of Israel, that's what Negev means, south, sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land, a stern vision is told me, the traitor betrays, the destroyer destroys, go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media, okay? Now, the Medio-Persians like that word media there, are going to be the ones that conquer Babylon. But if we're reading this rightly, and it's the timeline that I'm suggesting to you, this is when media and Elam are the partners of Babylon. And you know how Isaiah feels about alliances, okay? He's basically saying, you thought these were your friends, but look, they're going to plunder your corpses, okay? He says, all the sighing she has caused I bring to an end, therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like pangs of a woman in labor. Again, we find Isaiah physically compromised by the vision he's receiving because of how horrible the fate of these things are going to be. And strikingly here, who is he having compassion on? Babylon, right? He's overwhelmed by this because he's seeing the pain here and he says, I'm bound down so I can't hear. I'm dismayed so I can't see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. Now that's the place where it goes, but doesn't that sound like the handwriting on the wall? Here they are eating and drinking. But notice there's a call to oil the shields. They're getting ready for battle. 
What happens in Daniel is an utter surprise. It's unexpected. Okay. Continuing on here, verse 6. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, said a watchman, let him announce what he sees when he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels. Let him listen diligently, very diligently. Now, side note. That's another place where commentators like to say this is clearly the Medo-Persians because we know that one of the weird military tactics of the Persians under Cyrus was to ride camels because they'd never been seen before. And so they would disturb the nations they were conquering because they didn't know what they were. It was like riding in on a unicorn, okay? Um, And so that reference here is another place where they go, well, maybe. Um, But the idea here in the context is he's saying, look out and watch And, you know, what are you going to see on the road in those days? You're going to see merchants coming. You're going to see families traveling. But when you see chariots, you go, oh, wait, what is this, right? That's why you have a watchman. It's your security system, okay? Verse 8, then he who saw cried out, upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day at my post. I'm stationed whole nights, and behold, here comes horsemen in pairs. And he answered, fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. O my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. Now, notice who he's speaking to here. When he says you, he's talking to Judah, right? And so when he calls them the threshed and winnowed ones, it's almost like, do you remember uh, when we were going through 2 Kings and there was that guy who just came to get a message from the prophet? And he says, hey, is my master going to live or die? And the prophet's just suddenly overwhelmed with emotion. He says, why are you crying? He said, I'm crying because I see what you're going to do to your people. Right? It seems here that Isaiah is looking well beyond the pipe, and he knows what Babylon's ultimate purpose is. In fact, so do we, right? We read about them a few weeks ago. They are the winnowing fork. They are the threshing field, and Israel is the wheat, Right? And so he sees what this is going to do to Israel in the long run, but the purpose here, again, is because Babylon is a viable partner. Remember, it's Hezekiah who shows the Babylonians around and says, look at all of my wealth. It's them looking into the possibility of a political partnership. Okay, now, in contrast to that, where I can make a pretty good case for what's going on, what comes next is pretty mystifying to basically everybody. Okay, verse 11 the oracle concerning Duma, okay? One is calling to me from Seir. Now, Seir is also the land of Edom, of the Edomites, okay? Seir means red, so does Edom, okay? And that's where the tie-in. Duma uh, is referenced as being one of the descendants of Ishmael, but here it's probably not a person but a location. And so basically, this oracle involves in some way the Edomites, but notice what it says, okay? And so Isaiah hears in the middle of the night another watchman, this one from the land of Seir, and he asks a question. One is calling me from the land of Seir. Watchman, what is the time of night? Watchman, what is the time of night? Okay. Think of the old movies, you know, where the the messenger announces, at the sound of the horn it will be, you know, it's that type of an idea. And the watchman responds, morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. It seems like what this is suggesting pretty cryptically is morning's still coming, but what do we say? The darkest part of the night is before the dawn. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Okay? Here's the problem. We don't, we don't know the specifics of what he's talking about there. Okay? 
it may be that this is prophesying hard times for Edom in pair with everything else we've read. That would make sense of where we find this oracle. Uh, We do know, like everyone else, both Assyria and Babylon trampled all over Edom during this time. We also know that when Babylon finally takes out Israel, the Edomites basically sit on the roads as the captives leave Jerusalem and watch and cheer and go, hey, that couch you left behind, can I have that? Mocking them for their destruction, okay? All of these things are things we know, but what this is talking about, we're a little bit mystified. And it's a good reminder of two things, okay? One, just because we don't understand something today in Scripture doesn't mean it wasn't clear to its original audience, okay? We're still in the part of Isaiah where these are the things that came to pass in his own lifetime, okay? And so if you were a big fan of Isaiah the prophet and you had, you know, a scrapbook, You've probably got headlines under this prophecy of when these things came to pass, okay? But it's a little lost on us. Now, that doesn't mean that the turn of an archaeologist's spade might make this clear all of a sudden. That's happened so many times throughout Christian history, okay? Um, But the second thing is we should be okay with the humility that says we don't know what this means, okay? That's not really a threat to the authority of Scripture or its significance, okay? Um, it's much better than settling for our vapid postulations uh, and guessing and acting like our guessing is thus saith the Lord, okay? And so we should always be okay with saying, oh, we don't know, okay? Doesn't mean we won't ever know, uh, and it doesn't mean the people then didn't know. I'll give you another example. When Paul is talking about head coverings for women in the church in 1 Corinthians 11, which is a tremendously difficult passage, nothing is as hard as when he makes an aside and he basically says, women should have a sign of authority on their head, you know, because of the angels. And we go, no, we don't know, okay? But I'll tell you two things that we can take even from something that's as mystifying as that. Paul knows what he's talking about, okay? He doesn't have some sort of lapse of memory or, or some sort of random thing come out of his mouth. He means something. That's why we speak. We speak what we mean. Second, his audience knows what he means. He says it in such a way, uh, he doesn't give the extra details because he doesn't need to. It's like in the Gospel of Mark when Mark says Cyrus, who carried Jesus' cross, he was the father of Alexander and Rufus, and we go, big deal. But to his audience in Rome, that is a big deal because they know Alexander and Rufus and their dad Cyrus, okay? And so he's making a touch point with his original audience, okay? Um, and so, so that's kind of what we've got going on here. And then we have one last oracle here, which involves Arabia. Now, here's what you need to understand about Arabia. Arabia is not a nation. It's an entire area filled with nomadic people, right? Think of Lawrence of Arabia. This has been true for thousands of years. These are people who live in places where you can't settle down and farm. And so you're constantly moving, following, and taking your livestock where they can find good feeding. You're always living in tents, right? It's Bedouin people. That's what we're talking about, okay? So notice here, the order of verse 13 concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravan of the Deadenites. To the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. And so the idea here is even these Bedouin people become refugees of war. It's another, uh, another act of judgment that's happening here, verse 15, for they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the pressed battle. 
verse 16, for thus the Lord said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end, okay? And Kedar is at the far reaches of Arabia. And so again, we're a little bit at a loss on what this is specifically talking about. There's two possibilities, okay? Um, the most likely one is that Kedar is the offender here that he's been raiding the Arabians and they're on the run. And Isaiah says, that's not gonna last. Don't be afraid of Kedar, or more importantly, Judah, don't be impressed with Kedar. Don't go, oh, we got a new contender in the ring. He's lightweight, but maybe he'll do the trick. That's probably what's going on here. Um, the other possibility here is that uh, Kedar, including the Arabians, all of this together are all coming under the judgment of the Assyrians, okay? Those are both pretty good possibilities. Verse 17, the remainder of the archers and the mighty men and the sons of Kedar will be few, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Now, what's the striking and significant point there? God is determining the, uh, the history, the uh, national happenings for another people than Israel. Okay. He's calling the shots. He has a plan. He has a purpose uh, for these other nations. He is involved in geopolitical circumstances and history itself. Now, notice we've, we've moved all around. We've looked at Edom. We've looked at Arabia. We've looked at Babylon. We've looked at Egypt and Cush. And now we get to that slot that in the first lap was reserved for Israel, the close neighbors and past family of Judah. And now we get to Jerusalem itself. Okay, verse 22, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. Now, this label here is, is one that gets thrown around, okay? In fact, if you ever pick up a copy of the Puritan prayers that have been collected, we call it the Valley of Vision. It's a devotional book, um, and it's titled for a devotional on this particular passage, okay? Um, but, but again, we don't know why this is called the Valley of Vision. It's clearly talking about Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is sur surrounded by three significant valleys. It's basically a peak and then around it is a very low valley, and then there are peaks up around it like a crown, okay? Um, so here's what I think is the best suggestion. Jerusalem stands apart from all the other nations because Isaiah's there, okay? It's the valley of vision because Jerusalem is in tune with what God is doing. He knows what's going on. It's the place where God is pulling back the curtain and showing what's going on. That's part of what makes what follows so poignant because it's a you-of-all-people scenario, okay? It's shocking because it's not surprising that Egyptian gods fail them because they aren't gods. It's not surprising that the wisdom of Egypt uh, is turned fruitless because they don't know the God of the Bible, but Jerusalem should know better. And yet, in the Valley of Vision, verse, uh, verse 1 here, what do you mean <coughs> that you have gone up, all of you to the housetops, you who are full of shouting, tumultuous city, exultant town. Okay, so Isaiah asks a question and he says, what's the party for? Why is there this parade? Why all this celebrating? Why is it so loud in Jerusalem right now? And then he says, you're slain or not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together without the bow. They were captured. All of you were found were captured, though they fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Okay, so notice Isaiah has a very different perception. He says, you're celebrating right now, and I'm weeping. 
Now, we don't know what Jerusalem's celebrating yet. We'll see that. But Isaiah tells us what he's weeping about. On the outskirts of Jerusalem, there's already people who are on the run from an incoming enemy, and they've all been captured. And there's been no battle, just capturing, just surrendering, just retreats, okay? And then notice in verse 5, for the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. He says, your day is coming. Destruction is on its way. And then notice this, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains and Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. There's two possibilities here. Again, if we're talking about Shennacherib's surrounding of Jerusalem, which is probably the best way to read this passage, the idea of the covering being removed is all of the suburbs of Jerusalem, all of the uh, military outposts, you know, that are protective on the way to the capital, they've all been defeated. And so now the Valley of Vision itself, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is surrounded on all sides with the chariots of Assyria. That's probably the best way to read this. But notice here in verse 8, in that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the house of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. They see the proverbial writing on the wall of what's coming, and they reinforce the city. And they're pretty thorough. They actually demolish some of the homes. People lose their private property, their imminent domain, the houses that are closest to the walls, and they take that material and they strengthen the fortifications of the outer wall of the city. On top of that, verse 11, you made a reservoir between the two walls of water of the old pool. That is clearly a reference to Hezekiah's tunnel. Okay? Like we've talked about before, in Hezekiah's day, he went out to a pool in the river of the Kidron Valley, and he, he dug through 1,700 feet of rock to connect an underground canal to inside the city to the Pool of Siloam, if I remember right. Okay? Um, and if you go to Jerusalem, you can still walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. Um, but here, this is a, a significant fortification because it means that they won't run out of water if there's a siege, okay? So they won't just be um, dehydrated to the point of surrender, okay? Um, <clears throat> notice, uh, you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago, okay? Now we can finally understand what the celebrating is happening. They're celebrating because the fortifications are done. They go, oh man, things could have been so bad. If we were just a few days later in finishing these things, at any time he could have attacked and then we would have been in trouble. We would have been out of water. Our walls would have been weak. There would have been holes that they could have gotten through, but we are safe. And so ironically, they're celebrating surrounded. Ironically, they're celebrating right before the battle. Now again, God is actually going to deliver Jerusalem on this particular day, but what are they looking for to be their strength and safety, their fortifications. That's the problem. That's the issue. And remember, God has made clear uh, with Egypt, God uses Assyria. With Cush, God uses Assyria. With the Arabians, potentially, God uses Assyria. If Assyria is surrounding Jerusalem, who is fighting against Jerusalem? God is. Okay. And so they prepare the city, but they don't prepare their hearts in repentance. That's the problem. They don't turn back to the Lord. And remember, 
Israel is a unique nation in that explicitly God has said, I will bring enemies against you to bring you to repentance. They know the way, the rules of the game of their relationship with God. That's the problem here. And so, verse 12, in that day, the Lord, the God of hosts, called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness and killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. He says, today is a day of repentance and you've turned it into a day of celebration. And then he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, that could be can't think of that word. It could be gallows humor. It could be that they both feel very safe, but at the same time, things are really dangerous. And so if things go south, I want to at least, you know, get this last day of pleasure. Maybe. I would suggest, actually, Isaiah's words here are a little bit tongue-in-cheek. He's like, what's the idea here? Are you celebrating because tomorrow you die, right? I think that's probably what Isaiah is uh, suggesting here. And then he says, the Lord of hosts, verse 14, has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. God knows the disease disease of sin in Jerusalem is terminal. He looks down the pipe and he goes, I'm going to deliver you now, but it won't be permanent because I see what's in your heart. And I know the fruit of the next few years. I see where these things are going. Okay. Remember, Hezekiah is told the same thing. Hezekiah shows around the constituency from Babylon, and Isaiah comes back to him and he goes, you know, those are the people who are going to sack Jerusalem. And we see this same weird attitude, even in good King Hezekiah, where he goes, well, at least we'll have peace in my days. Okay. There's a resolve. Why is it that Israel won't be delivered? Because they won't cry out. Because they don't want to be. So, verse 15, we continue on here. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, Come, go to the steward and say to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him. Now, both Shebna and uh, Elikim, who are going to come up here, we've hit a couple of times, and almost always, it's just as minor players or on a list of job descriptions, okay? So we know that both of them work for King Hezekiah, okay? Um, Here, we're going to see that Isaiah has a specific prophecy for a specific person to bring about specific judgment, okay? Everything else has been big and national, but I would suggest to you again, based on the heart we just saw of Israel and what I mentioned about Hezekiah, this is an object lesson for us to consider. What's going on in Shebna? It's it's what's going on in Jerusalem, Um, but this is at the upper level. It says here that he's a steward Uh, That means he's part of Hezekiah's cabinet. In fact, it means most likely that he is second in command, okay? He's the vice president of Jerusalem, okay? So he says, go to the steward of Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on this height, and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Okay, so get the picture here. Isaiah is sent into this cemetery to meet with Shebna, who's currently building his personal place of burial, okay? Now, interestingly enough, because this mentions being carved out of the rocks and being at a higher elevation, we actually have a dig where it says, on a tomb, uh, it's blank, 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 everything's missing, and then it says, uh, who was over the household, 
Okay. So maybe it's his tomb, like it says here, Shebna over the household. So maybe originally it said Shebna, servant of Hezekiah, who was over the household. Okay. Um, just like we would engrave a tomb today. Okay. Maybe that's his. But either way, he's building a tomb either while the city is under siege or more, more likely while they're preparing for the siege. Everything we've, So Hezekiah is down at the pools. He's overseeing the work. And Shebna goes, I want to build my memorial, my, my tomb. I want to go work on my mausoleum. Okay. That's what's being addressed here. Now, it's worth pointing out here that this isn't just self-serving and tremendously expensive uh, and uh, personal business on work hours. All those things are probably true, but it's also probably a direct rejection of the ministry of Isaiah because what's going to happen to Jerusalem? What's the danger of what's going on right now? It's deportation. And here's a guy like, no, I'm going to be buried right here in Jerusalem. I'm building the grave and everything. Okay. It may be it's even as deep at that as that, but very least here, this man is not a lover and server of the people. He is a self-serving politician who wants to make a name for himself and wants to employ wealth to, uh, to do it. Okay? So he comes, he's asked about verse 17, Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots your shame of your master's house. He says, you've been pursuing glory, but it will be to your shame. And that makes a little bit of sense, right? If he ends up outside the land, then his tomb just sits unoccupied, okay? He's never buried, even though that was the, the goal, the final project of his life, okay? Um, and then notice verse 19, I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. And that day I will call my servant Elikim, the son of Hikiah, and I will clothe him with your robe. I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Not self-serving, but a loving, protective, providing father to Jerusalem. That's the job description according to God for leaders, and Elikim's going to do it. Okay. It says, continuing, and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Now it may be, that a sign of the office of the one, the steward who oversees the house, was actually a physical key that they wore like a badge uh, or a, um, uh, a patch uh, right on the sash so everybody knew who they were, okay? Um, it also may be here that this is just symbolically laying out the significance of what comes next. And so um, just like we give keys to the mayor of the city, it says the key of the house of the David, he shall open and none shall shut, he shall shut and none shall open, okay? That's a statement of full authority. What he says goes, okay? The key represents the fact that he says, we go this way, we go this way. If he says, stop, don't go that way, they don't go that way, okay? It's full authority. Interestingly enough, Jesus takes this imagery in Revelation when he's speaking to John, and he says, I am the one with the keys of David. What I open, no man can shut, and what uh, what I shut, no man can open, but he adds something. He says, those keys are the keys of death and Hades, okay? His authority isn't just over the house of Jerusalem. It's over the underworld itself. It's over everything. He has the keys to the kingdom, okay? And so his authority is complete and full, okay? In fact, some suggest here that Elikim in this role is 
is basically serving as a type of Christ. I don't think you have to go that far to still get the significance of what's going on here. Again, as I've said before, the book of Revelation draws heavily from the imagery in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's saying, what Ezekiel talked about, I'm talking about. And sometimes he's just saying, here uh, is the language and the imagery of Ezekiel that I'm employing for my own purposes. Okay? We actually do the same thing in conversation all the time. Okay? Um, it's one of those, but nonetheless, I'm going to put Elikim there. He's going to have your role. He's going to have your clothes. He's going to have your authority. Verse 23, I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue of every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. Now, I've never been in an ancient Jewish home, but the books I read tell me that uh, you wouldn't generally find a cabinet in those homes where you would keep all the vases. You'd find pegs, individual pegs, where you'd hang all the implements you need to the for the day so that they're not underfoot, because remember, most of them are made of clay. You trip over it once, it's gone, okay? Um, and so the idea here is that he's going to be such a firmly placed peg that all the implements of the house, everything will hang on it and be fine. Okay. From the big vessels to the flagons, all the way down the teacups and also uh, you know, your, your big stock pot, everything there. Verse 25, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Now, that's kind of a surprising ending, isn't it? He says, I'm going to replace you, Shebna, and put Elikim in your place, and I will make him a firm peg that everything holds on. And then it says, in that day, everything's coming down because I'm going to sever the peg off at the roots. Now, it may be, once again, pointing to the fact that Elikim and his own righteousness and his own good doing isn't enough to spare Israel. That may be. We've seen that back in 2 Kings with some of the last kings who were really good kings, but it was too late, right? More likely here, this is going back to Shebna. And so it's a contrast between the firm peg and the current peg, which I'm going to take and the whole house is going to go with it, okay? In other words, every person that uh, Shebna has hired, everyone who's in on his wealth conspiracy, everyone who's learned from his model and followed in his footsteps on how to do their job, they're all gonna be gone. It's going to be a political house cleaning. That seems to be more likely, but when we read in that day at the front of that, it gives us pause, and it makes us wonder if that's what's being pointed to. One more chapter here, chapter 23. Here we have the oracle concerning Tyre. Um, now, Tyre is a really interesting nation in the Bible, okay? Because Tyre is never, in its entire history, no pun intended, a political power, okay? They're not known for their military might, they're known for their economic success, okay? Because they are the definitive merchants of the ancient world. Tyre was set up on the Mediterranean closer to Spain, okay? That's why uh, when Jonah is called to Nineveh, he flees to Tyre, because it's as far away as he knows on a map, the end of the Mediterranean, and in the opposite direction from Assyria, okay? Um, we know that it was set up so it had a harbor on the mainland, and then it was also about, uh, uh, about um, just a bay away, there was a small island and they, they straddled both. And so they had this safe harbor and they sent their ships all over the place. It's remember Hiram, king of Tyre, who provided all the cedars of Lebanon to Solomon to build uh, 
uh, when he wanted to build. It's Hiram, king of Tyre, who provides all the boats to Solomon so that he can carry all of his goods to the whole known world and bring back, you know, the exotic natures of those things. That's what they do, okay? Tyre is significant in the ancient world because they have their finger in every pie. And so, to some degree, they're too big to fail. Remember when banks were saying that after the crash and we were wanting to slap them on the wrist for getting us into that mess? And they're like, but you can't, you have to bail us out because if we go, everything goes with us. That's Tyre, okay? They are the centerpiece of the entire ancient world economy, okay? Now, what it's going to talk about here is the destruction that comes on Tyre, but actually that happens five times, okay? And when it finally happens, if I remember right, it's under General Titus, the same one who sacks Jerusalem in 70 AD, it never comes back. Okay. Um, Ezekiel talks about Tyre and he says, one day all that will be left of Tyre is the rocks where fishermen throw their fishing nets to let them dry. Okay. That's the Tyre we know now. That's what exists. Okay. Um, but remember, just one other note, this is one of the primary images that gets grafted into the whore of Babylon in the book of Revelation. That is not just a religious power that's fed on the blood of the martyrs, but an economic power that has brought wealth to the nations, right? If you read that and the fall of Babylon there, it's clearly stripped right out of the fall of Tyre here, okay? So look, verse 1, Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants, to the coast, the merchants of Sidon who crossed the sea have filled you. Okay, Sidonia is pretty far away, and it's recognizing here the fall of Tyre hurts all the nations. And so, you know, the Sidonians are shocked to hear it because their wealth was built on the back of Tyre and it's gone now. Their foundation is pulled out from them. Verse 3, on many waters your revenue was the grain of Sihor, the harvest of the Nile. On you were the merchants of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken. The stronghold of the sea saying, I've neither labored nor given birth. I've neither reared young men nor brought up young women. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? The way that Tyre worked as an empire was a lot like how things worked under Spain and England in the days of exploration of what they thought was India or New India or what we know as America, okay? They'd show up, they'd set up a fort, and then they'd harvest all the resources in the name of their nation, Tyre, okay? And so what it's talking about here um, uh, <clears throat> is, you know, the feet carried to settle far away. They were a migrant people settled all over the world to, to make this economy work. They were international, metropolitan. Verse eight, who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honor to the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. And so again, why is Tyre coming to judgment? Not because they're vicious and cruel conquering, but because of their proud, wealthy boasting and their personal aspirations to glory, okay? And so here, the problem isn't a violent one, but an economic one, and God says, I'm going to bring it all down, okay? To, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. 
Cross over you land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no restraint anymore. Uh, verse 10, we don't really know how to interpret, okay? Uh, cross over your land like the Nile. What does that mean? Does it mean that Tyre is going to be washed away like in a flood? That's about the best attempt we can get at. Some suggest that we have what we call an interpolation here, which means that the text has been corrupted in such a way. But nobody's made any good suggestions, no spelling fixes that make sense of it. Um, but in the context here, clearly we're, just, we're talking about the destruction of Tarshish. Um, when it says there's no restraint anymore, the word there for restraint is the word for girdle. And with that, uh, in this context, it's one of protection. Okay? There's no defenses left. There's no safety. He, God, has stretched out his hand over the sea. He's shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sion. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. Behold the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people that was not. Assyria destined it for wild beast. They erected their siege towers for they stripped her palaces bare, they made her a ruin. And so again, we see the tool in the hands of the Lord is the Assyrian people. They're the ones who bring the destruction on Tyre. And so, <clears throat> uh, so notice here, um, verse 15, in that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years. Okay, we started tonight right in the first decade of the eighth century BC. I have a harder time remembering how to label centuries in BC, but 711 was that date we talked about. If this happens like we think, right at 700 AD, 70 years would bring us to 630, which is the end of the Assyrian power. And so that would make sense with what's, talking, what, what's being said here, which is basically Tyre's going to be wiped, uh, wiped out and not rebuilt for the entire duration of Assyria's rule. Okay. Um, and then it says, they'll forgotten for 70 years like the days of one king, in other words, a generation. At the end of the 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as the song of the prostitute. Now, I'm assuming you don't know the song of the prostitute. Isaiah here is evoking a well-known song to make a comparison, but it's a song that we don't have. But when we look at his parody of it, you know, it's a little weird owl here. That's what he's doing. We can get a guess about what that was about. So notice verse 16. Take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. And so it seems here the song of the prostitute that everybody knows is about a woman who was sought out because of her beauty and her allure and these types of things. But now she's aged and the only way she can get any clientele is to go and get them, to sing, you know, and hang a sandwich board around her neck that says half off, okay? Um, and so he says there's going to be a return here just like there was with that woman, but it's going to be different. But uh, notice what the difference is going to be here. Verse 17, at the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of, her, of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. Again, a surprising end. Wait, Tyre has a destiny that involves God? Tyre, the economic power that was, is somehow going to be subsumed under the reign of God, and uh, you know they're going to be appropriately tithing towards the worship of God? But notice the quick switch there, the transition between 
uh, verse 17 and 18. In 17, she's whoring herself out with the kingdoms again. That's the same imagery that's used for economic Babylon in Revelation. That's why she's the whore is because she's, like I said, got her finger in every pie. She's working every deal internationally. She's making it happen. Um, and so it seems like <coughs> the tire of 17 is a midpoint. It's a restoration, but it's not the final conclusion. Even tire, like a prostitute returning to her trade, coming out of retirement. Even tire, like a dog returning to its vomit. Okay? Even though she's going to be rebuilt again and again, and now we're in the longest period of its, its non-existent, there will be a time where this uh, economic mover and shaker of the known world won't be eradicated. The idea of Jesus returning and setting things up doesn't throw out the economy. It purifies it of its corruption. Okay, that's the idea here. And again, we get this tremendous hope. But read this for Jerusalem again. Jerusalem, Isaiah is bewailing the fact that they're trusting in all of these false sources. But then he goes, however, even Tyre, God's not done with. Which is another way of saying, even you, Jerusalem, there's still time for. Even you, Jerusalem, there will be a remnant. Even you, Jerusalem, God is going to bring about salvation and glory. And surprisingly here, every time he's talked about a salvation of the other nation, he's referenced Israel coming out on top, right? Why? Because that's where the throne of God is. That's where Jesus will sit and rule and reign, okay? And so even here in the midst of tremendous judgment and a horrific, unheeded warning for Israel, God's plan, which is ultimately a plan of restoration, of goodness, of shalom, of well-being, will not be thwarted. And so the tension again, the question we should be asking is how? How can God take this repeated refrain of his people's failure and rebellion and turn it into obedience? How can he take sin and make it righteousness? How can he take disobedience and set it right? How can he take death and make it life? And this is all the tension that's leading us um, to chapters 50 and beyond, which we will get to in a few weeks. Let's close for tonight. Father, we thank you for the book of Isaiah, for the Bible, for the whole Bible, Lord. We know that without the Old Testament, the New Testament wouldn't be new. We know without the Old Covenant, the New Covenant wouldn't be shocking. We know without the bad news, the good news would not be good. And we know without the full story of your redemption, we would not truly know the God who made us, who we rebelled against and resisted, who became a man and took our place and died the death that we deserve and freely offered us life at your side and in your love and as part of your family. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to wade through these things because, again, the problem was not just Israel or Tyre or Assyria or Egypt. The problem runs through all of our hearts. We are in these pages. We are worthy of judgment. We are hard-headed and stubborn and constantly in rebellion. And you, on your own initiative, because of your own character and love, in your own power, bearing the, own, the whole cost on your own shoulders, has paid the full price of that and freely made a way where there was no way. We thank you for that. We praise you for it, in fact.
And we ask that we would continue to reflect on it, to know it to be true, to remind ourselves of these things and remember how much you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.